Today's reading is from the book of Luke, chapter 6, verses 27 to 45. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Chinese New Year, Lunar New Year, or Asian New Year. Um, Good to also welcome... uh, Aaron Kaufman from Virginia Mennonite Missions and a guest from Ethiopia. Welcome, my brother. Uh, It's good to have you with us today. Well, today is a topic about love and judgment. (laughs) See, we love to talk about love. We like to make these hearts everywhere. We're made to believe that being in love is crucial to our happiness. And we make finger hearts to show our love to the world. But we also like to talk about judgment. More often than not, we like to talk about how the judgment of others is inappropriate. Now, whether or not you identify with the Christian faith, many people find themselves quoting Jesus' prohibition here in Luke chapter 6. Don't judge or you're going to get judged. Or some variants, like don't judge me. Little do we realize that by invoking this statement, we're doing the very thing that we're asking people not to do to us. Because the statement itself is a judgment about other people's perceived judgment on you. So with all this talk about love and judgment, what exactly are we describing? 
See, when it comes to love, it's hard enough to love someone you're supposed to love, like your child. Loving your two-year-old who's doing a temper tantrum is really difficult. Loving your parent or your partner, there's times when it's really hard to love them, right? You don't have to nod your head beside. <laughs> and if that's hard enough, what about loving an acquaintance or a stranger? And here Jesus takes it up to a whole other level. Love your enemies. And what about judgment? It's, we find ourselves so e prone to judge, right? We judge other people's driving. We judge other people's uh, social media feeds. We judge other people's fashion choices. We judge other people's diet choices. We judge other people's politics. And the Christian church isn't immune to this either. Our history is littered with judgment of one another. That's why we have all these hundreds and thousands of denominations. Because we judge our theological position or interpretation to be superior to that of a sister or brother in Christ. Despite all of our difficulty in loving well and in not judging, we still do it. We all want to be seen, we still want to be seen as loving people and not as judgy people. Right? I know that's me. So what's the way out though? Jesus has, seems to have something to say about this dilemma. As we continue in this Jesus by Dr. Luke series from chap Luke chapter 6, Jesus builds on uh, Luke's, uh, Luke's account of the Beatitudes with a series of teachings on loving and not judging. Loving your enemies and not judging others. And the text we turn to today comes on the heels of Jewish leadership questioning Jesus' faithfulness to the, to the law, to the Torah. Because at the very beginning of this chapter, his disciples seem to be breaking the Sabbath. So, how do we love well, and how do we be less judgy? In Luke 6, we're going to see how Jesus offers an antidote to this problem. The antidote to measured love, an antidote to unmeasured judgment, and ultimately an antidote to a stingy heart. See, most of what is considered love nowadays is measured love. Luke kind of addresses it. You lend to those who lend to you, you give to those who give to you. You love someone because they meet your standards of what is deemed worthy of your love. You love those who are most like you. You love those who think like you and are interested in the things that, that you are interested in. You like love those who share your life experience or your interests and your preferences and your hobbies. You love those who will accept you for who you are. But if you really think about it, what's considered love is actually really loving yourself. We love those who share, Christians do this too. We love those who share our theological convictions. We love those who share our same passion and mission in God's kingdom. This kind of love is measured love. It's a kind of love that is discriminate. It's judiciously extended based on whatever standard you deem to be worthy of your time and attention and of your love. But Jesus here has a different kind of love in mind. What does he say? I say to you who are listening, say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Love, do good, bless, pray for. Not just your friends, not those who do those things to you, but your enemies. But who are these enemies that Jesus is talking about? 
Who are these enemies that we're supposed to love and do good towards and bless and to pray for? Jesus reminds his followers that they will be hated on account of him. It's all a reference back to a few verses earlier in verse 22. They can be expected to be persecuted for their faith and convictions as they follow Jesus. Now, when we read this text and apply it in an unhealthy manner, this can result in Jesus' followers anxiously thinking that the whole world's out to get us. So we withdraw into our little worlds or we go on the attack. Sometimes I wonder what is considered persecution or when Christians in the West claim persecution are really truly persecuted for their beliefs or because of their lack of self, their, their self-awareness, or the self, lack of right, self-awareness or self-righteousness. Is it really about our faithful following of Jesus? But here, Jesus offers a different kind of response when one is persecuted and mistreated, especially when it's for, that persecution is for following in the ways of Jesus. Rather than with aggression or with retaliation, Jesus is inviting his followers to respond with mercy. Mercy. For Jesus, mercy is turning the other cheek when someone slaps you. So what are we supposed to do with this text? Now, just to be clear, Jesus isn't prohibiting like self-defense or remaining in abusive situations or the appropriate use of military or police force. He is addressing interpersonal relations, again, specifically due to one's following and attempt to live out Jesus' teachings faithfully. Understanding these customs of the ancient Near East might be helpful here, and this honor-shame culture of the time, something that we're distant from. So then, when someone was offended and they would slap you as a sign of that offense and to shame you, they would take their right hand and do a backhanded slap across your right cheek. This is recorded in the, in the Mishnah, the Jewish law of oral tradition. Now, if you are slapped in this manner, Jesus is saying, offer the other cheek. Because he would go like this, and then you would turn back and say, come at me, bro. No, you wouldn't say that. But, but what, what that would happen is you would force your attacker to strike you with an open right hand, or to use their left hand to slap you, both of which are considered shameful for them to respond to. So in short, when attacked, particularly in an attempt to be shamed for one's faithfulness to following Jesus, Jesus' command here to love your enemy is to do that by not escalating the violence, not escalating the shame and returning shame with shame. Turning the other cheek, what does that look like? in today's time. I think it makes, there's huge implications on, in our online culture where any perceived uh, offense, that's where you go to. You go online. You see, the shaming slaps of our day aren't done with, with our hands. They're done with the fingertips on our mobile phones or on our keyboards. We don't strike cheeks now, but profiles and hashtags. See, at the slightest offense, we go to our social media and we post gifs and memes and quotes of people who agree with us and we tag those who agree with us. And we do all of that before we go 
to talking with the one who offended us. I think we do that because we love the dopamine hits of all the likes and affirmations on our social media feed more than we love to extend mercy towards our perceived offender. Often, we don't even have a conversation with the offender because we drop them and we silence them on social media and IRL in real life because we deem them as toxic to our well-being. In many ways, our culture has confused disagreement and different convictions with toxicity, with real toxicity. New York City pastor Rich Viotis recently tweeted, our level of offendability often reveals the, our level of maturity. Our level of offendability often reveals the level of our maturity. Put another way, engaging with ideas that are contrary to yours doesn't mean it's automatically toxic or bad for your mental health. Because often, it's the way that we grow the most. Acting in love towards those who we perceive to be attacking us is not just refusing to retaliate. It's not just being, ignoring them or silencing them. Instead, Jesus calls his followers to respond to offenders in ways that lead them to realize their misdirected ways themselves. Following Jesus means that we will hold views that differ from the world around us because of the ethics, because of the convictions, and because of what Scripture has to say is essential to human flourishing. It will be different. And that's why Christians have historically stood apart from culture at large, historically, throughout the ages, back to Jesus' time. Because even in, in Jesus' time, Christians treated women and children much differently than the culture around them. They welcomed marginalized people groups much differently than the people around them. And today, in our time, we might have different convictions about sexuality and beginning of life and end of life issues than the culture around us. Now, those convictions may result in Jesus' followers being discriminated against, marginalized, or being taken advantage of. But Jesus' command here means that we are to face rejection very differently from the world around us. And that is by being generous, by being compassionate, rather than responding with retaliation and self-defense. You know, in verse 31, Jesus restates the golden rule in doing to others as you would have them do to you. To you. This is what it means to respond with unmeasured love rather than measured love. But if you read it, it's a nice quote, but it's really hard to live, isn't it? How do we do that? Before we get there, let's take a look at judgment. Jesus, in this next section, verses 37 to 42, addresses the topic of judgment. And he uses some, you know, vivid images and some, it's actually dry humor in Hebrew, to point out the folly of competing wisdoms of the time. He's saying that the teachings of these, his time may sound wise, but ultimately lead you into the ditch. And if you recall that this whole section Again, is Jesus responding to the Pharisees' criticism of his disciples for breaking the Sabbath law. So he uses this image of 
take the log out of your own eye before you point out the speck in someone else's eye. Don't be the blind leading the blind. This is a warning for all of us against a certain type of teaching or perhaps an ideology in our current times. He points out the challenge of seeing clearly enough for yourself, even as you're leading others, before you criticize someone else. See, often what people criticize others is what they subconsciously are aware of or afraid of in their own lives. You notice in others what you notice in yourself first. Psychologists call this phenomena projection. We project onto others what we notice in or lack in our own lives. So out of fear, out of shame, out of insecurity, or just plain avoidance, we are tempted to point out our own particular sensitivities, but in other people's lives. And Jesus is asking us to not do that. When we get to Jesus' statement about not judging in verse 37, note that his words here aren't not a, uh, they're not a prohibition about making any sort of judgment about any sort of matter. See, the rest of Scripture gives us many examples of how God's people are to exercise judgment. It doesn't rule out the legitimate use of discernment and of church discipline and of appropriate use of the legal system. The original Greek here literally means stop judging, stop condemning. Stop judging. Stop condemning. For Jesus to prohibit these things, it challenges the listeners, like you and I, to stop our tendency to criticize and find fault in others. In other words, stop unmeasured or indiscriminate judgment in our criticisms, in our social media rants, and even in our curses. Consider this. When someone says the phrase, God damn it, or some variant of that, they are expressing their anger or frustration towards a person or towards a situation. And they are demanding God to execute judgment now. The one who curses is judging and asking God to execute that judgment on demand. Instead, Jesus invites his followers not to retaliate, not to judge, not to condemn, but to what? To forgive and to give. Give generously. You see, don't judge here isn't intended to be used as a self-defense mechanism to protect yourself from any sort of criticism, because that's often what it's used for nowadays. This command is actually in an invitation to extend forgiveness to those who do not who do you wrong. This command is not to not judge is in fact an application of the previous section on loving your enemies. To first love your enemies by extending mercy, extending compassion, even when you are wronged. So rather than respond with unmeasured judgment, indiscriminate judgment, Jesus here is asking his followers to respond with radical, radical generosity even to those who would do you wrong. Verse 38 is often quoted by preachers. Give and it will come back to you, press down, measure, uh, fill, me, press down, measure, and filling over. 
It's often used by preachers as an encouragement to give generously of your tithes and offerings. But given this context, the giving here has nothing to do with the generosity of your finances. It has everything to do with the generosity of your heart. As we'll soon find out, though, the state of and health of our hearts does affect the rest of our lives. So it does affect including our ability to give materially, to forgive those who wrong us, and to love radically. Many of you will recognize Nelson Mandela, the anti-apartheid activist and the first black president of South Africa. I had a chance to watch the movie on the plane this week. As he was released from 28 years of uh, imprisonment, unjust imprisonment, it was a tense time where the anger of the entire country, especially the blacks, spilled daily into violence and bloodshed. They were trying to move towards a compromise. And despite the violence done against him and his people, he advocated for what he saw was the only way forward, which was peace. Can you imagine that? 28 years in prison. Many people killed. He empathized with his fellow citizens' right to be angry. And he felt the anger himself in the face of injustice and oppression, decades and decades of it. And even though he did not trust the president at the time, F.W. de Klerk, he was convinced that the only way forward together was peace if there was to be a shared future for all. And in 1993, three months after this this statement that he made and this call to his people, with Mandela now as president, he would go on to share the Nobel Peace Prize with this president that he did not trust. Give, forgive, bless, pray for our enemies, those who don't deserve it, to those who offend us, to to those who might even harm us. This goes against all of our human instinct. It goes against good old American common sense, right? Because if we do that, wouldn't that make us look like a bunch of pushovers and wusses? What's the antidote to measured love and unmeasured judgment? What's the antidote to this stingy heart that measures everything out? You know, as much as we aspire to love generously and to not be judgy, the Christian story tells us that we can't help it. It's very rare. Jesus' teaching to love our enemies and to forgive them rather than to judge them, these commands can only be done when it's done and it's a love that's grounded in the character of the living God of Scripture. That's why Jesus says, be merciful just as God your Father is merciful. You can only do this when you understand the character of God. And it goes, even the, the prohibition to not judge is also wrapped in generosity and forgiveness. It's wrapped in humility and in love. All these qualities are, that are revealed in the very character and nature of the living God. Ultimately, true love and true judgment, reflective of God, will bear good fruit in, in our character in our speech, and in our actions. See, our hearts are stingy because they've been bent out of shape, because they've been hurt, because they've been traumatized. 
Our hearts are in need of change. We cannot will ourselves to love, live in truly unmeasured love or measured judgment. They can only be fruits of a heart that has been changed by God. And because it's a fruit, the quality of your judgment and love cannot be measured by yourself. It's measured by the ones observing your life around you. The point of Jesus' teaching here is not really about being more loving people or being less judgy people. That's not the focus, even though that's what he's talking about. The point of all this is to develop and to illustrate an attitude of our hearts and lightness of of spirit that in the face of all that the world throws at us, says, I trust you, God. I'm going to walk in your love. It's this posture of a heart that is, as we've been talking about continuously, of decreasing anxiety and fear and increasing yielded trust in God. A heart that decreases in anxiety and fear over time and increases in yielded trust to God. We become less concerned about what people think of us. We can become less concerned about whether we're being perceived as loving or being perceived as not judgy people. Instead, we simply become more loving. We become less judgy because our hearts have been formed by God. A God who is love. You know, those whose hearts have been transformed by God don't have to talk about how loving they are or about how not judging they are. Others just see it. And we can be like this because that's what God is like. God is generous to all people. And for those of us who have stingy hearts, it feels like God is almost too generous to a fault. God provides good things for all to enjoy, whether they deserve it or not. What kind of God? Why would he do that? God is incredibly merciful. And if anyone has really recognized what's going on in your own heart, and you still recognize that and experience God's grace and love in your life, You can't deny it. How can we, his forgiven children, be any less so towards those who might offend us? When we realize that this is the sort of God that loves and forms us, only then will we have any chance of following and living out these ways of Jesus. At the end of the day, these instructions are really about the kind of God that you believe in, that you say you believe in, and the way of life that follows as a result. Theologian N.T. Wright says it this way. If you lived in a society where everyone believed in this God, there wouldn't be any violence. There wouldn't be any revenge. There wouldn't be any divisions of class or caste. Property and possessions wouldn't be nearly as important as making sure your neighbor was all right. How does the way you live reflect the kind of God that you say you believe in? As we've been walking through Jesus' commands to love and forgive generously, you might come to two realizations. One, they're pretty simple and obvious, right? Be more loving, be less judgy. But the second implication is that they're really rare. They're really hard. How many people do you know who actually live like this? How many communities practice 
this as their rule for life together. If we at WCF say that they're simple and obvious but incredibly rare, what's going on amongst us? Do you think God has changed? Or have we forgotten who God really is? The antidote to measured love and unmeasured judgment actually has nothing to do with love and judgment at all. It has to do with returning to the character and nature of the, the God that we say that we worship and follow. May we, as a people, return to God each day and discover how his mercies indeed are new every morning. That we, in turn, might live in true mercy. Our transformed hearts can be generous and compassionate in all things, even in the face of hardship and persecution. That's my cry for us together. Amen.